We're beginning a new sermon series today. This month, we're talking about idols. And somebody is going to say, I'm sure, because every time I talk about idolatry or idols, somebody says, well, Wes, come on now. I mean, we don't have a problem with idols. We're not making statues and bowing down to statues. And, and some people, even when you talk about idolatry in kind of a, an intellectual sense in the mind and the heart, somebody will say, well, Wes, I just don't think that that really compares until we start bowing down before a golden calf, we really don't have a problem with idolatry. Well, I beg to differ. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 that covetousness is idolatry. Think about that for a second. Covetousness is idolatry. In the book of Ezekiel, God says about the leaders of Israel, not just that they had a problem with statues, which may be the case, but Also that they had taken their idols into their hearts. See, idolatry is a heart issue. And that's what we're going to talk about and examine and look at and examine our hearts and say, is it possible that I have a problem with idolatry in my heart? Now, how do we figure that out? Well, when I was growing up and we start talking about the modern applications of idolatry and forbidding of idolatry. Somebody might say, well, an idol is anything that's more important to you than God. Well, there's a lot of truth to that, right? That something that's more important to you than God is certainly an idol. But that's a hard definition to work with. You know why? Because we're a bunch of liars. And we lie not just to each other, but we lie especially to ourselves, don't we? We deceive ourselves. You say, well, you know, I I don't think that anything in my life is more important to me than God. God is most important, therefore I don't have a problem with idols. Next series, please, right? You know, let's let's move on because I don't put anything above God. Well, maybe there's a better way to think about this idea and really search through and examine our hearts and ask ourselves, is it possible that I deceive myself? Maybe there really are things that are more important to me, more important in my life than God. Let's, let's work with this definition for a second. Idolatry is making a created thing an object of worship. Okay, that's a very general definition, but I think that that might help us to start to think through this idea. So idolatry is taking a created thing, and that's the thing about idols. They're, they're, they're about good things, right? Because created things are good things, right? Everything in the world that God created, He looked at His creation and said that it's what? Good, right? So they're not necessarily bad things. The things that they're chasing after, they're created things, therefore they're good, but it's bad, it's sinful, it's wrong, it's destructive when that created thing is made an object of worship. Now, what does that mean, to make something an object of worship? Well, we we can see, and we've probably talked about before, that the word worship has the same root as the word worthy, right? That's, That's a word that came up several times in our singing this morning. In the Scripture reading before the Lord's Supper, worthy. So when we worship someone, or we worship something, we're saying, you are Worthy. Worthy of what? Well, you're worthy of praise. You're you're worthy of adoration. You're worthy of love. You're worthy of devotion. Why? Because because you're going to save me from something, usually a, a deep 
fear, or you're going to satisfy something, usually a, a deep longing, right? And you're saying, you are going to help me or save me or satisfy me, and so you're worthy of my devotion, my love, my adoration, and my praise. Is it possible that we're communicating that idea that we feel that way in our heart about not just God, but some created things in the world? I like this definition the best. It's Tim Keller's definition. And he says that idolatry is turning a good thing, created thing, into an ultimate thing. It's taking a good thing and saying that this is ultimate. This makes life worth living. This gives my life significance. This gives my life meaning. This gives me security. This will satisfy my deepest longing. This will save me from my deepest fear. If I didn't have this, life wouldn't be worth living. Is it possible, if we're honest with ourselves, that we have deified an idea or a thing or maybe even a person or a relationship or a pursuit that we have deified that in our hearts and that is what we are devoting our lives to? We have made those things ultimate things in our life. It might help us to think back about the ancient ways of worshiping idols and the the gods, so to speak. Obviously, they're not gods. They're counterfeit gods or false gods, but what they represented. You see, it was when you worship the god of love or the god or the goddess, rather, the goddess of love or the goddess of beauty like Aphrodite, or you worship the god of war or you worship the god of the harvest or you worship the god of your sin or you worship the God of your empire. It wasn't necessarily that you were worshiping, you were, in a sense, worshiping that God, but it was a means to an end, right? Because you had so deified the idea of beauty, or so deified the idea of love, or so deified the idea of fertility, or the harvest, or your nation, or your empire, or your military strength, that those ideas, those concepts, those things had become so ultimate in your heart that you created a personification of those ideas and then eventually carved something into wood or stone to represent that because your ultimate pursuit was that. Is it possible? Even though we don't call her Aphrodite anymore, that we deify the idea of love and beauty that we sing her praises, that we pursue her with our might? Is it possible that we have nationalistic idols? Is it possible that we have, we may not call him Ares, the god of war anymore, but is it possible that those ideas still linger in our minds and more specifically in our hearts? Is it possible that economic stability and economic success or careers or relationships, all good things, right? Wonderful things, enjoyable things can become 
our true pursuit of our hearts. And, and in that regard, it's even possible, I think, to turn Christianity, in a sense, pervert Christianity into a form of idolatry. How so? Well, if, if you're using God as a means to an end, if you're using God as the means by which you're going to gain relationships or financial success or a nice house and a nice car and a nice country and, and all the comforts that you really truly desire, then it isn't God that you're really serving. It isn't God that you're truly pursuing. It isn't God that you're truly loving. What it is, is your end. And you're using God as a means to that end. See, God doesn't want to be a means to an end. The God of the Bible doesn't want to be a means to an end. He doesn't want you to serve Him so you get stuff. He wants to be your pursuit. He wants you to seek Him. He wants you to love Him as He loves you. So often in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, God's people, when they were guilty of idolatry, the Old Testament called that spiritual adultery, right? Because their heart was given to another. They felt about things the way they should only feel about God. And that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is feeling about stuff the way you should only feel about God. It is to betray Him with your heart. So let's think through and let's work through a text, okay? Uh, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now, Romans, we're going to talk about that tonight. I know that there is some sort of a sporting event going on this evening. I'm not sure what that is, but... uh, um, but, but tonight we're going to work through the book of Romans and look at some of the problems that the church in Rome was dealing with. So I hope you'll be here tonight. We'll talk about that, but... Just as a brief um, introduction to the book of Romans, this is a letter, and Paul is talking about the relationship of God with the Jews first and also the Gentiles. Okay, And so he's explaining in this first chapter why the Gentiles so desperately need a Savior. Then he's going to go on in chapter 2 to explain why the Jews need a Savior. And then chapter 3, why everyone needs a Savior. And the reason why is because, chapter 1, they're under the wrath of God. Because they're idolatrous. And why is it that they were idolatrous? What is the root of their idolatry? And I think this is really going to give us a glimpse at the human heart. And if we're honest, it'll give us a glimpse at our own heart. Look at Romans 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The truth about what? Well, we'll look at that in a second. They suppress the truth by their ungodliness and unrighteousness for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How has he shown mankind some of his characteristics? Verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. See, that's what the creation is all about. 
the, the creation, all of the wonderful things in life, all of the things that you can taste with your, your mouth and feel with your hands and see with your eyes, all the things that are good and that you look at or that you touch or that you experience and you say, this is good, this is enjoyable, this is lovely. They were never supposed to be an end in and of themselves. They were always supposed to point man to their creator. And we were supposed to look at these things and say, wow, where did this come from? This must have come from someone much grander than the creation itself, much more magnificent than the creation itself. Verse 21, for although they knew God, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, that's where idolatry begins, is a failure to acknowledge God, a failure to honor God, a failure to give thanks to God. It is to look at the creation and instead of saying, this is good, therefore God is great, it is to look at the creation and say, this is great, and fail to give honor where honor is due. Failure to give thanks where thanks is due. You say, well, why is that a big deal? Paul is going to show us how when we fail to worship, when we fail to honor, when we fail to give thanks for the good things in the world, how our foolish hearts become darkened and how we set about on a course of self-destruction. Look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Do you see the the description, the adjective that Paul is using to compare, to contrast these two ideas? He's saying, you exchanged, or the, the Gentile world, humanity in general, has exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the the God who doesn't decay, the God doesn't have weakness or failings, the God who never disappears, the God who never changes, for the mortal man and beasts and created things. It's a bad exchange, isn't it? It's a bad trade-off, right? So instead of making God their pursuit, instead of making God the center of their world, they made the mortal things that God had created the center of their world, their pursuit, their heart's desire. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Now pay attention to the times that Paul uses words like this, like lusts. The lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, idolatry and by, and sin as a connection to that and all sin really as a connection to that is a failure to worship the right thing, the right one. We fall into idolatry when we worship and we serve and we devote ourselves to the creature, the created things, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
When we focus on and we say, this, this, my career, my job, my kids, my grandkids, my wife, my, my country, my whatever, we devote ourselves to that as if it were an ultimate thing. And we say, this, this is what life is all about. If I didn't have this, life wouldn't be worth living. This is everything to me. This is my world. This is my life. This is my everything. This is the heart of it. And if we're honest, we can see in Paul's words, not just somebody else that's guilty of this, but the guy we look at or the gal we look at in the mirror, exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. You see, lusts and passions, desires, That's what idolatry is all about. It's all about deifying your wants. And to say, my wants, my desires, my appetite is all there is. That's what life is all about. And if I can have this want satisfied, then I'll be satisfied ultimately in my deepest being. If I can have this, this itch scratched, if I can have this longing satisfied, then everything will be right. How often does that work out? How often does it really work out like that? Or is it more like Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes that that the more you chase after these idols, the more you chase after all the things of this world, it's a vanity of vanities. It's a chasing after the wind. You think you've got it and then you open your hand and it turns to dust and it's nothing. And look at what Paul says happens. God gave them up to the dishonorable passions. God said, fine, if that's what you want, if you want to make the creature rather than the creator your God, if you want to serve and deify your passions and your lusts, then I'll let you. I'll let you. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to a human being is to get exactly what he wants. Maybe the worst thing that you could get is to get exactly what you want because then you realize... It's nothing if what you want is a mortal thing. Their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with, again, passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. One of the marks that a culture, a society is idolatrous, is sexual immorality. Why? Because they have deified their desires and their wants. Sex is a good thing. It's a God-created thing used in the right context, in the right way according to God's design. A husband and a wife being the picture of Jesus and the church, Ephesians 5. When sex is in that context, it is a God-glorifying thing. But when it becomes an end in and of itself. And when a person thinks that if I had the right relationship, the right experience, the right gratification, well then all of my fears will go away, they'll be stilled, and my deepest longings will be satisfied. And that's what we get as a culture, is a sexually perverse and a sexually immoral culture 
when passions and lusts are deified. When people believe that the ultimate good is to do whatever you want to do. Go read the book of Judges sometime. And you'll see just how perverse a culture can become when there is no king and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And maybe we find ourselves in that exact situation. We certainly do as a culture. Verse 28. And since, because they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Do you see beyond the surface of what Paul is saying here? It's not just all of this wickedness and all of this evil that brings God's wrath upon humanity and is it's why God is going to and they deserve to be, we deserve to be, not just them but me, deserve to die without a Savior. It's not just about the things that we do. The root of it is a failure to acknowledge God. The root of it is a failure to honor God. The root of it is a failure to seek God. The root of it is a failure to give God the glory. And because we didn't see fit to honor and glorify God, but instead made gods for ourselves, we became all of the things that Paul lists here. And because of that, we have the wrath of God upon us as humanity. And so that's what Paul is saying, Romans 1, that we deserve to die and that Chapter 2, the Jews who had the law deserve to die. But then, but then, and here's the, here is the cure for our heart's idolatry, is the cross. The only thing that can change our hearts and change our minds is to remind ourselves about who God is. Because here's what idolatry is. Idolatry is magnifying things and minimizing God, isn't it? It's about looking at good things and saying, this is great, this is awesome, this is what life is all about, and being all consumed by things and thereby minimizing God. And isn't it interesting? I'm not picking on football just because it's Super Bowl Sunday, but because it's, it's true in every sport, but isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting how passionate we get about a game? Isn't it interesting that we could get so wrapped up in it. I mean, I'll tell you, when the Rangers lost the World Series, I mean, especially when we lost it, you know, we had one out to go, right? I mean, it was heartbreaking, wasn't it? And I think, wait a second, wait, just hold on a second. Why? Why do I care so much about a silly game? Why is it sometimes that we not just care a lot about those things? If we're honest, we care more about those things. We feel about things the way we only ought to feel about God. 
Because we have magnified stuff and we have minimized God. The answer is the cross. Because if this is true, if it's true that the second person of the Godhead came in human flesh and died on a cross to save us from the wrath we deserve, if he came to save us from our sin, if he came to give us eternal life, and I believe with every fiber of my being that that's true, then then why should I really care that much about anything else, right? In comparison... I mean, that's not to say that all the other things in our life, next week we're going to talk about relationships, and relationships are good. I'm thankful I have a wife, and I'm thankful I have children, and I have parents, and I have wonderful people in my world. But in comparison to what Jesus has done for us, everything else should pale. And that's why we've got to keep our focus on the cross. That's why the cross brings everything into focus. Because it helps to magnify God and minimize things. If idolatry is the magnification of things and the minimization of God, then the cross helps to reverse that, helps to cure us of our our idolatry, helps to magnify God and minimize things. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that hasn't yet committed their life to Jesus. I'm not going to twist your arm about it. I'm not going to try to compel you to do it. What ought to compel us to do it is the cross, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that everyone who believes in Him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. And if that's true, then everything else pales in comparison. And if you haven't given your life to Him, what are you waiting for? And for those of us that have given Him our life, Let's live like it. Let's not be spiritually adulterous where we feel about things the way we should only feel about God. If we could pray with you, there's a room in the back. The elders would love to pray with you. You can come forward. We're in this together. This is a struggle that we all have. And it's a struggle that we can only overcome in Christ with the Spirit and with His People, we want to help you. We want you to help us. We're in this together. We can help you. Why don't you come forward as we stand and sing?